Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, it's good to be back with you again. We will continue to make our way through the Gospel of Matthew, which we started last week. This week we'll be looking in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Again, Matthew chapter 1. 18 to 25. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go before our Father once again in prayer. Father, as we come to your word, how we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of it. Lord, we know that your word declares many supernatural things that you have done And first and foremost, the things concerning your own son. We pray that you would give us hearts to believe that we might be comforted by the things that are written in your word. We pray that you would heal us, O Lord, of our slowness of heart to believe the things written in your word. That your spirit would be present both in the mouth of the preacher and and in the ears of the hearers. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for the sake of the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you know we started going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we looked last week at the genealogy that's found in Matthew chapter 1. Now, you'll remember one of the things I said about Matthew's Gospel is that it is the most orderly of all the Gospels. And one of the things that we find in the way that Matthew's constructed this Gospel is it's clearly divided into two parts, two very distinct parts. And the the hinge, or the middle, so to speak, of the gospel is the confession that Peter makes in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything in Matthew's gospel up to that point is about trying to show that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God. And once that confession is made, then the entire gospel shifts to to emphasize the death of Christ, 
and what he would do to save his people. And what we have here then in Matthew chapter 1 is Matthew beginning to explain who the Lord Jesus is. We looked last week at his genealogy, which primarily describes who Jesus is in terms of his human origin. He is a son of David. He is the son of Abraham, and he will bring back his people from captivity. But here in verses 18 to 25, where we have the record of Jesus being born of Mary as a virgin, we have a very clear testimony to his divine origin, that Jesus is not just any son of David or son of Abraham, but because of his birth, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he is in fact God, both God and man. So as we come to this passage, think about Think about this. Which articles of our faith are necessary to believe in order to be a Christian? Is it necessary for you to believe all of the miracles that are recorded in the scriptures? Or even as we are here talking about the virgin birth, is it necessary for you to believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary being conceived by the Holy Spirit? Is it really true that something like this happened and why does it matter? Well, you may be very familiar with the Apostles' Creed, which I'm sure we can you confess every, every so often here in church, how it, it is something that we confess as a church, that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's something that is a part of, of our confession of faith to God. But it's not without controversy. Indeed, this very point was actually heavily debated in the 19th and 20th centuries. Did Jesus, was he really born of a virgin? Was he conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit alone? And if you're familiar with the history of our own denomination, you'll know that this was something that that Machen himself, the father of the OPC, debated very heavily and even wrote a book, a book on the virgin birth to defend this very thing. And the, his conclusion, and the conclusion of those who were the conservative members of, of the Northern Presbyterian Church at the time, was that this was not a matter of opinion. It was not something that you could take or leave. The virgin birth was crucial for our faith, which we confess. And if you give it up, you will end up giving up the entire gospel. This is the very thing that we have recorded here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And the reason it is so important is because from this text we see that this, this is not just simply a miracle to be believed, but Christ being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, as the, as the creed says, that that proves that he is both our Savior and God with us. That's what this text shows. That Jesus, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he is our Savior, and God with us. We'll look at this passage under three headings. First in verses 18 to 20, we'll consider the conception of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, as it is said. Secondly, in verses 21 through 23, we'll see the implications of this. Why, why does it matter that the Lord Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? In verses 21 to 23, and we'll look at that particularly under Christ's two names. And then in verses 24 and 25, we'll see that Christ's conception by the Spirit was believed. 
and he was in fact born of the Virgin Mary in verses 24 and 25. So look with me again at verses 18 to 20. You'll notice in verse 18, we have a summary statement of, of Christ's birth. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother was Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now here we have a very clear statement on what's going on before they came together. That is, Mary was still a virgin and he, she was found to be with child, but her being with child was by the Holy Spirit. This is the main thing that Matthew is emphasizing in this passage, that the Lord Jesus Christ was in fact born of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the great things we have here in Matthew's version of this story is the story is told from Joseph's perspective. So you may know that this the story of Jesus' birth is also told in Luke's gospel, Luke 1 and 2. But in Luke's gospel, the emphasis is on Mary. Mary's perspective, the angel appears to Mary. Mary is the one that travels to, to go see Elizabeth. It's her that gives the, the song of praise. And we have then the, the record of the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Mary. Here, in Matthew's gospel, the perspective is on Joseph. How was it, what was it like for Joseph? as the legal father, even if not the natural father, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can imagine what, what it would have been like for him as all of this is happening. He takes a woman to be his fiance, so to speak, as we would say today. It's actually a stronger connection than, than what we would call a fiance today. Mary was called his wife in that regard, but they had not come to live together, so she was still a virgin. And he discovers that she's pregnant. Now, of course, she she likely told him that this was, you know, by the Holy Spirit. We know that that she had been told this by the angel Gabriel, as we know from Luke's gospel. But think about how this would have been for Joseph. Think about if you are in newly engaged to somebody and you find that they're pregnant. What would they have to do to convince you that this was not due to a marital infidelity? Of course, it would have been a terrible thing for him to consider. Now, he, he would have known at that point that, you know, the Messiah is coming. It's near the time. There was a great expectation that the Messiah was coming. He, he would have known the prophecy that the Messiah would have been born of a virgin. But how is he to know that it is his wife that's going to bear this particular child? How, how is he to know? If it is true that his wife is carrying the Savior of the world, who is going to come into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, he ought to do everything he can to protect her. But if what would appear to him to be more likely, if she you know, was guilty of marital infidelity even before they came together, then of course there would have been there would be great, great problems. And so you can you can then get a sense for why this troubled Joseph so much. And he would have needed more simply than her word to be able to understand what to do. And we read his dilemma in verse 19, where he said, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So this is how he resolved the problem in his mind. He wanted to be merciful to this woman who was his wife. He wasn't really sure what was going on, but it appeared that she had been unfaithful to him. 
And so he decides to put her away quietly. That's what he had decided to do. His doubts are obviously very understandable. Nothing like this had ever happened before in the history of the world. Now, one of the the things that this teaches us is that we as Christians ought to always be quick to give our brothers and sisters especially the benefit of the doubt and not to be quick to condemn others or to claim that others are in the wrong before all of the facts are made known. We have to be long-suffering with others and to be slow in this regard, to come to conclusions. If there is a way that we could think that our brothers and sisters acted faithfully towards us, then we ought to give them the benefit of the doubt. And Joseph appears to be trying his best to do this, even in a very difficult situation. And then you know what happens next. As he's pondering these things, there is an angel that appears to him in a dream. And the angel says this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, someone receiving a message from the Lord in a dream would have been a very normal way that a prophet in the Old Testament would have received a message from the Lord. And this would then be in in this category. This is a divine revelation given to Joseph through the through an, an angel that what was born what was being what had been conceived in Mary was in fact of the holy spirit this was a confirmation of the thing that Joseph doubted the thing which was in Mary's womb was not the product of sin the one to be born was to be born of a virgin so here we have Not just any confirmation, but this is the confirmation of divine revelation that what was happening was a virgin birth. And so there can be no doubt at this point in these first three verses what the scriptures are teaching about the virgin birth. Joseph himself doubted it. This was the reason why he had such a great struggle. Could this be true? And and this was the very message which was confirmed by the angel himself. Do you believe in the miracles of Scripture? Do you believe in the signs and the wonders that are recorded in the Scriptures? Now, there are many who will object to these sorts of things today, saying that these sorts of things cannot happen. There are many people who will try to claim to be Christians and yet would deny even this story or, or maybe others. Some will, Many will argue that You know, we do not see things like the sea parting like it did in the days of Moses or people walking on water. We do not see fire coming down from heaven like it did in the days of Elijah. We don't see walls crumbling to the ground simply because people circle them as happened in the days of Joshua. And so the argument goes, it's not happening now. What's to think that it happened then? But there's a a problem with this kind of reasoning, which is that, of course, If these miracles were repeatable, then they would not be miracles by definition. If there was some way that we could figure out how these things could plausibly be done simply with natural explanations, then the moment we succeed in that, we we have made these miracles no longer miracles. And so, of course, these things have never happened again. There's never been another exodus. 
like what happened with God's people in the time of Moses. There has never been a people taken from the midst of another nation and brought into a land that had been promised by God. And so there's no need for another Jericho. These things were special events, and they happened because of the great power of God. And that there are recorded in Scripture is enough for us to believe that they happened. God has shown himself to be all-powerful, and we can take him at his word. Now, there are others, though, who rather than denying all the miracles of Scripture, will in fact argue that the things that happened in the, in the Bible that they happen with the same sort of regularity or even with a greater regularity than they did in those times. There are those who will argue that there are healings in the exact same way as there was in the time of the apostles, that there are people who can simply say the word and others will be healed, that there is a continuation of prophecy, the speaking of tongues, and, and that sort of thing. And this actually makes an opposite error, which is that it does not recognize that the miracles which are recorded in Scripture are given for a special function. They're given to confirm the great message that was coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because there is no need for a different message to be confirmed, we also have no need for these same sorts of signs. There was one time when the Red Sea was parted. It was to confirm a particular thing that was happening in redemptive history. There was one time that the walls of Jericho fell. It was to do a particular thing in redemptive history to give the people of God the promised land. And there is only one Savior who has ever been born. Therefore, there is only one need to have a virgin birth. There's only one need to have the kinds of signs that the apostles did. They were confirming the message that was given through the Lord Jesus Christ. That message has been confirmed. And so there's no reason for us to argue that these things that we saw in Scripture are going to happen with the same sort of regularity. We, we are guarding the special nature of those things when we say that they've ceased. That, that what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient, and we are not looking for more than what we've received in Him. And one of the things we also see is that's overlooked by those who will argue for healings, prophecy, tongues, that sort of thing, is that even in the scriptures, miracles are actually very rare. There are many people in the Old Testament, many great men, think of David, who lived their entire lives without seeing anything like the kinds of signs that were done in the days of Moses or Elijah. These things were meant to confirm particular things. And here we have the confirmation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is not only man, but he is in fact God. And so it is required for those who will call themselves Christians that they believe in the things written in the scriptures concerning the signs and wonders that are, are found there. And more particularly here, it is absolutely necessary that we hold that the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Anything else is is simply unbelief. It's simply a denial of the, the omnipotence of God, that he is all-powerful. If he is all-powerful, it is not a strange thing to think that he could do these things. But again, the, just simply believing in the fact is not enough in some regards. 
and the and the angel doesn't leave Joseph there either. He gives him reasons why the Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Holy Spirit and why it is important. And it's here that we see what the price tag is for us if we give up the virgin birth. If we give up the virgin birth, then we also give up what the implications are of the virgin birth. And that's what we see in verses 21 through 23, where we see that he is given two particular names. Now, the angel gives us one, and then Matthew fills in the second. And the angel says this in verse 21, speaking of Mary, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is to say, this virgin birth, that the one who is born, it is this person that will be Jesus and save his people from their sins. If this one in the womb is not born of a virgin, then there can be no sense in which he is the Savior. Now notice, his name is called Jesus. Now the word Jesus means Jehovah saves. This is another testimony to his deity. It is Jehovah who saves. That's the one who is to be born. And we learn a couple of things about about what it means for Jesus as Jehovah to save in this text. The angel explains, he'll be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And we learn at least two things from this. First, that the mission of Christ was spiritual. He's not come to save the Israelites from political domination by the Romans. He is not come to save us from difficult times in this life or anything else. He has come with a particular mission to save his people from their sins. This was from the beginning the greatest of problems. This was the reason that man was sent into exile away from God, God and being cast out of the Garden of Eden when man disobeyed God at the beginning. It was because of sin that man had to die. And the promise that was given at the very beginning that there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent, of course implies that he would also undo the effects of the sin which had caused all of these problems. Sin from the very beginning, from, from the garden, has always been the problem. And the, the promise of a savior has always been in relation to this problem, that there is one who is coming who will fix the problem of sin for his people. The mission of Christ is spiritual. But notice also, the mission of Christ and his efforts to save are for a particular people. The text says, for he will save his people from their sins. That is to say that Jesus Christ has not come for the purpose of saving every single person in this world. He has come to save his people from their sins. Now, the moment I say that, perhaps you can think of objections in your mind. Can it really be that Christ did not come to save all people? That just doesn't sound like it's fair or it doesn't sound like a God who's loving that he would choose some and not others. But think, if he actually did try to come to save every single person in this world, we are in a very great dilemma. If Christ came to save all people, then we have to say that he failed, because not all people are in fact saved. You either have to say that, or you have to say that all people are saved, and that hell will be empty, which goes completely contrary to what Christ has said. 
that the way is narrow that leads to life, but the way is broad that leads to death, and there are many who go by that way. Again, if Christ came to save all people, either he failed because he attempted to save every single person and was unable to do it, or all people are in fact saved. And of course, neither is the case. Christ came to save a particular people, and he accomplished his task. Everyone whom the Father had chosen in eternity to save, he gave to his Son, and it was for those particular people that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for, those particular people who were saved, those particular people who were sent the Spirit, that faith might be worked in their hearts in due time. And so, of course, if you're sitting here today, one of the most important questions you could possibly ask is, how can I be one of the people of God? And am I one of the people of God? And the answer to, to that is this. Everyone who repents and believes in the gospel is a part of this people. If you take shelter under the wings of the Almighty, you will be his people. And it is for those people that Christ has endeavored to save. And because he is the omnipotent son of God, he has surely accomplished his task. And you can be assured, if you trust in him, you are saved. You are saved. So Jesus will, have, will bear the name Savior. He is Jesus, Jehovah who saves he will save his people from their sins. If this was not the one who was born of a virgin, then he could not be this. But secondly, this was also the fulfillment of another prophecy which is given in Scripture, one that we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 7. For it says in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, as Matthew gives us, God with us. So again, this is a proof of his deity. The Lord Jesus Christ is no ordinary person. He is, in fact, God, and he is God who is with us. Now, if you remember back to last week, one of the things that I said was that in Matthew's genealogy, there's an emphasis on the return from exile. Jesus is the one who will bring his people back from exile. And you remember what happened right before the exile came. The glory of God, the presence of God with his people left. And it was to show that from this point on, God's people are now separated from him. But here we have the undoing of that. This is, this is what signals that the exile is in fact over. The glory of God never returned to the temple. But here, the glory of God does. The glory that tabernacles now, not in the temple, but in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is now with his people again, and in such a way that he will never be separated from them. This is the height of the privileges that we have in the gospel, that God would be with us, that we would live with him all the days of our lives. And in fact, this is actually how Matthew begins and ends his gospel. You remember the very last words of the gospel are this. As Jesus is sending out his disciples and he's given them the great commission, he says, And behold, I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. 
There is none who can separate us from the love of God. There is none who can separate us from his presence from this time forth and forevermore. And brothers and sisters, you may think, well, the Lord Jesus Christ is not actually with us today. He is, in fact, in heaven. But remember what the Lord Jesus Christ has also said in other places, that he goes to heaven and from heaven he will send another helper and comforter to be with us forever. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, he even says that it is better for for you that I go away, for if I do not leave, the helper will not come. And so the continuation of the Lord Jesus Christ's tabernacling presence among us is in the person of the Holy Spirit, whom he has sent to dwell not just in our midst, but in our very hearts. And so we have God with us in a way that even the apostles before the the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, even they didn't have until Pentecost when the Lord Jesus Christ poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people. And there is an even greater way that we look forward to the presence of God. For there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return with all of his angels And the dead in Christ will be raised and we will be with him forever and ever. This is what it means. This is the beginning of all of that. God with us because he is born of the Virgin Mary. Now, with this particular reference to Isaiah chapter 7, there are often objections that are made against the use of this prophecy. There are those who will argue, for instance, that Matthew is really misunderstanding the prophecy and that in the context, and according to the Hebrew, that Isaiah 7 is actually not dealing with the birth of a virgin, but simply a young woman. Some will argue that the word that's translated virgin in Hebrew doesn't actually mean that. It only means a young woman. And Matthew was uh, mistaken because of the Greek translation, which translates the word as virgin. So what do, we, what do we say to this? Does, does Isaiah 7 teach a virgin birth? Well, in fact, it does. One of the, the clear things that's been pointed out for hundreds and hundreds of years is that you may be able to argue that, that the root words, that the root for the Hebrew does not necessarily uh, necessitate the word meaning a virgin. But the reality is, in every single usage of the term in the Old Testament, in every single one, it means virgin. It always refers to a virgin. There's no evidence that it means anything but virgin. And secondly, think about how anticlimactic it would be if this was not referring to a virgin birth, that there is this great sign which is given to the house of David that's to confirm that to Ahaz that the Davidic line will continue and it will end with the Messiah. And the sign which is given is that a young married woman will have a baby. Young married women have babies all the time. It's, it's not significant. Why, why would it be of, of any importance that a young married woman would have a baby? Why would that be a great sign in the Old Testament? And so we see then from the text, which was understood by those who translated into Greek, and again, every usage of the term in the Old Testament, is that it refers to a virgin. This was the great sign, that there is one who is coming who would be born of a virgin, and because they would be born in this miraculous way, this person would, in fact, be God with us. And the context of Isaiah makes it perfectly clear that this child is God himself. As the child is mentioned over and over in 8 and 9, chapters 8 and 9, 
and he is called the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And so we have here then the implications of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Because he is conceived by the the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he must be Jehovah who saves, and he must be God with us. Anything less than that would mean that he cannot be those things. If he was simply the product of marital unfaithfulness, then we would have to conclude he is simply a normal person. He is nothing special. We clearly would not be able to say that he is, in fact, God. And we have then the, the, the record of what happens next in verses 24 and 25. Joseph believes all of his doubts and fears are gone. He's comforted and he understands now that, yes, this one who is in the, the womb of my wife is in fact the savior of the world and I have no reason to doubt. J- Joseph himself believed in the virgin birth and it was through this belief that he derived a great comfort. He was obedient, he arose, and in verse 25 we have the record that Jesus was in fact born, and he was given the name Jesus. Do you believe this story? Do you believe that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Again, this is what proves that he was Jehovah who saves and he was God with us. Think about this. If he was simply the product of a normal union between a man and a woman, we'd be able to say that the person is a man, but what grounds would we have to say that the person is in fact God? If he has not only a biological mother, but a biological father, then we'd have to conclude he is just a man. He's just a man. And if he is just a man, how could he possibly save us? And he certainly couldn't be God with us. Think about this. Think about which was more, which is harder to believe, more incredible to believe, that Jesus is in fact God or that he was born of a virgin. Now, if you're going to confess that Jesus is God and you're going to say that that is a pillar of our faith that cannot be, that cannot be denied without overthrowing the entire gospel, how hard would it be then if you're already claiming that he is God, that as the omnipotent God, he was born of a virgin. If God is truly all-powerful, then these things are not difficult for us to believe. Or think about this, if we compare the Lord Jesus Christ's birth, which was in many ways parallel to several other births in the Old Testament, we compare them to, to, to those. Remember that Abraham and Sarah had a miraculous birth of sorts, that he gave birth to a son at the age of 100 and his wife at the age of 90. That birth was given to show that Isaac was a child of the promise and that he was, in some sense, special. He was set apart by God for a special purpose. Or think of even Isaac himself with Rebekah, how they could not have children for 20 years. They were waiting. But God had promised them that they would, that Rebekah would conceive, and it was through that conception that we have the twins, Jacob and Esau, and the covenant was confirmed through Jacob. These special births, showed special acts that God was accomplishing in redemptive history. Think about also Hannah with Samuel, same sort of thing. All of these things are dim echoes of the greatest act that God would do in the birth of a young child. 
the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, not to those who are simply old, but even to one who was a virgin. And if we were to deny that Jesus was born of a virgin, then we'd have to say that he is even less than Isaac. He's even less than Jacob or less than Samuel. And certainly if they could not save us from our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ can't either. And so this is a crucial pillar of our faith. And what a comfort it is for you this morning to to know that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. That you can know because this one is the eternal Son of God then, that he has saved all of his people from their sins. And that you will never be left alone in this world because God has sent his Spirit to dwell in your hearts by faith. May God grant us, his people, always to believe this, to stand firmly upon the testimony which is given in Scripture, that we ourselves might be comforted and live lives that are worthy of his gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would grant us faith to believe in these things, that you would help us to stand firmly upon these things, to give a clear testimony to these things when asked, that we would not that we would not shrink back from any opportunity that we have to testify and to bear witness that yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is no ordinary person, that though he may be a son of David and a son of Abraham, yet we know by his being conceived by your spirit that he is in fact the eternal son of God come to be with us. Lord, we pray that you would grant us comfort to live our lives in a way that shows that we believe that this is true and that in the midst of all problems and trials, temptations that we face in this life, that we would take comfort in the fact of knowing that you are with us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.